From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. Back in, let's say, 2008, it was a lot tougher for a woman to get the authorities to believe her story of sexual assault. And Ken Armstrong has co-authored a book uh, about that case. It involves a woman named Marie. And Ken, what attracted you to this story? This, I mean, this goes back, what, 11 years now? You know, what attracted me to the story was I, I read in the newspaper about a woman in Linwood who had been sexually assaulted, had reported it to police, had gone through all the steps you would expect someone to do after they'd been attacked. And yet she was not only doubted, she was charged criminally with making the story up. What I really hoped to do was to figure out how the investigation went wrong. You know, where did the doubts set in and how did they spread? The other thing I hoped was that with the years that had passed, perhaps Marie would now be open to talking about all she had gone through. Before that point, she had never talked to the media about all she had experienced. So how did the story begin? Well, Marie was 18 years old in 2008. She had grown up in the foster care system. And when she was living in her first apartment with her first job, with her first sense of freedom, of independence, she was um, raped by a stranger who broke into her apartment and attacked her at knife point. She immediately reported what had happened. She went to the hospital for a rape exam. The police investigated. They found evidence consistent with her account. But what happened is that one day after the attack, one of Marie's foster moms, one of her former foster moms, told the lead detective that she had doubts about Marie's credibility. Based on what? It was based largely on the way Marie reacted after the attack. She didn't act in the way that the foster mother expected someone to act after they've been hurt. Mm -hmm. There's this misconception that there's one right way to act when you've been hurt, that you're supposed to be hysterical. You're supposed to be how people imagine they would be in that situation. And there is no one right way. Marie's affect was flat. Her tone was emotionless. Mm -hmm. Um, Her whole demeanor was puzzling to a lot of the people around her. And that's when their own doubts set in. And when those doubts were communicated to police, the police absorbed them. And from there, they started viewing everything skeptically, and the investigation went sideways. What about, that's why we rely on evidence. We don't just rely on an impression of a person. There's got to be evidence. What, What was the evidence in the case? Well, the evidence was she described a physical assault where they where she had been gagged and bound, mm-hmm. and they found evidence consistent with that. She had bruising on both of her wrists, mm-hmm. which was consistent with her account. When she went to the hospital for the rape exam, they found physical injury consistent with her account. There really wasn't anything in the evidence that was inconsistent with yeah. what she told police. That sounds like happened. it confirms her story. Well, what was this now? One of the most famous false accusations of rape was the Duke Lacrosse case. Had that occurred by then or not? You know, I'm, I'm not sure. It may, I don't know if it had unraveled at that point, right? Yeah. Because the Duke Lacrosse case had a pretty convoluted history, and I really can't remember how juxtaposed it went with Marie's case. Yeah. So the police decided that suddenly the, the physical evidence wasn't sufficient because of her attitude? Once the one of the foster moms told police that she had doubts, the police 
became skeptical themselves, and they confronted Marie mm-hmm. three days after the assault. And you had two male detectives in an interview room, much like you and me sitting here, and they told her that they thought she was lying. And every time she said she wasn't, they confronted her. And they used a very high-pressure interrogation technique called the Reed technique. And under that pressure, she buckled. Tell me more about this technique. What do they do? You know, it, it's a technique that police have been taught for more than 50 years. And it's one in which they interpret body language. You know, they, they believe that they can detect whether somebody's telling the truth by whether or not they're making eye contact, by their posture, by the position of their feet. It, it, it's all as ridiculous as it sounds. I've been using it for 50 years? Has it, does it have any scientific backing? None. None whatsoever. And in fact, in police circles now, there's starting to be a slow retreat from this kind of training. There are some agencies now that no longer offer it. But it's been sort of a conventional folk wisdom in police circles for a long time that they can interpret body language. And that's what they were doing with Marie. She wasn't making direct eye contact. They thought that that um, was suspicious. She also was using language that they found to be inconsistent with someone who was telling the truth in terms of qualifiers she would use or her demeanor. Again, going back to demeanor, you know, she's 18 years old. She'd grown up in the foster care system. She was vulnerable. She had been both physically and sexually assaulted as a child. That's why she was in the foster care system. Right. She was someone who was almost uniquely positioned to give in to the kind of pressure that she gave were in. She gave in. And, and, and said that she had made this up? She did. And then well, she. Well, that's the ballgame. To the police, it was. Yeah. Uh, to the police, they considered that to be the end of the case, which is what made what happened afterwards even more telling. When she went home that day, she reconsidered. She collected herself um, and she talked with friends and associates. And she decided that she was going to go back to the police station and basically take back her recantation and say that she'd been telling the truth all along. That's what she did. She went back and said, I was telling the truth. I want to take a lie detector test. And at that point, a Linwood police detective threatened her. He told her that if she took the lie detector test and failed it, he would book her immediately into jail. And he would also recommend that she lose her housing assistant, uh, housing assistance. She had a subsidized apartment, Mm -hmm. which meant she would be without a home. Under that pressure, she again recanted and took her story back. I see. And never took the lie detector test. She never did. Although those aren't, aren't always reliable either, are they? They're not. So what eventually happened to her? Once she recanted, the um, police department um, decided to charge her with filing a false police report. And in Washington State, that's a gross misdemeanor, punishable by up to a year in jail. And in the face of that charge, she took what amounted to a plea deal. Um, and under the terms of this plea deal, the charge would go away, would be taken off her record if she agreed to be on probation for a year, if she agreed to pay $500, and if she agreed to get counseling, not for being raped, but for lying about it. Hmm. That's the deal she took. And it's on her record. It, it was on her record at that point, but it's only because of the postscript in this case that we know she was telling the truth all along. That's the, uh, that's the twist here. At some point, well... How was the truth finally discovered? The truth was discovered 1,300 miles away uh, when police detectives in the suburbs of Denver 
discover that they had a serial rapist who was moving from jurisdiction to jurisdiction just outside of the city. They formed a multi-agency task force, and in 2011, they arrested a serial rapist named Mark O'Leary. When they searched his home, they found on a memory card from his camera photographs of other women that he had attacked previously. And on the last photo on that card, the one that would have next been deleted had he taken one more photo, was a picture of Marie holding up her learner's permit, which had both her name and her address. So based on that, the detectives in Colorado knew that he had also committed this assault in Washington state. How did the cops react to that, knowing that they had badgered and uh, probably re-traumatized an innocent person? It devastated them. And I say that to give the Linwood police credit, because in a lot of situations like this, when you have high-profile mistakes like this that have such dire consequences for people, a lot of times police will not acknowledge their mistakes, much less apologize for them. In Linwood, the police owned their mistakes. The lead detective met with Marie face-to-face and apologized. Mm. And to hear Marie tell it, there was no doubt that the apology was genuine. She said he looked like a lost little puppy. He actually thought of leaving police work because he figured if he was capable of making a mistake that grave, should he continue in this line of work. And then after that, the Linwood Police Department instituted a number of policies and new training to try to minimize the chances that this would happen again. Yeah. I would think that is the last thing any police officer or prosecuting attorney, for that matter, would want to have on his or her conscience that you put an innocent person in prison. Absolutely. And they say it in almost exactly that those terms. You know, I talked with the police commander who was the head of their criminal investigation division, and that's what he said, to, to realize after the fact that she had been attacked in this way, and then we called her a liar. Um, we want to make sure that never happens again. That's kind of their approach going forward. So, Ken, looking back on this, was there anything Marie could have done to persuade the cops she was telling the truth? I don't know. It's a difficult question. Um, I I think a lot of people assume that if she hadn't recanted, that the police then would have assumed that she was credible. But when you read the police statements from that initial interrogation, it's clear that just from her body language— they already assumed that she was being deceptive. So I'm not even sure that her word saying, I am telling you the truth, would have done it. I think they may have still been skeptical. I'm trying to figure out what to learn from this. Uh, And it sounds like, number one, if it really happened to you, don't recant, no matter how much pressure they put you under. Unless it means that, unless we have a system that is still able to imprison somebody based on pressure tactics. I mean, I I guess then if we, but that would acknowledge that we, that that would assume that we are now in a police state where defendants like Marie have to take seriously the prospect that if they fight for the truth, they could lose their freedom. I think that's the most terrifying part about this because Marie's case is not unique. You know, we have found instances in Wisconsin in Pennsylvania and New York, among other places, where the same set of facts played out, where a woman reported being sexually assaulted 
and was not only not believed, but was charged criminally, only to have evidence to develop later that she had been telling the truth all along. Um, and, and I think that what Linwood has done um, in the aftermath of this is what a lot of police departments would benefit from doing, which is realizing that they need to follow the evidence. They need to understand that trauma doesn't look the same in every instance. They need better training. They need higher thresholds for when they start doubting someone, and they need really high thresholds for when they charge someone criminally with filing a false police report. It is not unheard of that women will lie about this, but it's something like, I think, 7% of the cases. It's a relatively small percentage. It's, it's frankly, an unknowable number, right? Yeah. How could we possibly right. know? But the, the most rigorous scholarship puts it at between 2 and 8%. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, 7% in that neighborhood. But we know it's, it's a relatively small percentage of cases, which is why it's more important than ever that you listen with an open mind and you follow the evidence. Ken Armstrong is going to be at Elliott Bay Books tonight. He has co-authored a book with T. Christian Miller called A False Report, A True Story of Rape in America. And uh, this has been turned into uh, a Netflix series. That's right. There's going to be an eight-part dramatized series based on what happened with Marie and based on the work that the detectives did in Colorado. Um, It's going to start airing on September 13th. The cast includes Toni Collette, a brilliant actress, and the writers include Michael Chabon, um, the the well-known novelist. So Netflix has really invested heavily in telling this story respectfully, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Ken, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Dan. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe, and then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.